everybody. Um, our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Clayton. Uh, before I jump in and do what I normally do at this point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help the perfectionists in the room by straightening this out, because if you're anything like me, that was going to be distracting. Okay, well, for the rest of us uh, non-OCD people in the room, um, we have been um, talking about um, Christian spiritual practices. So for the, for the season of Lent, and then um, through the season right after that, right up until um, summer, what we are doing is we're talking about kind of normal, basic Christian spiritual disciplines. We're, we're looking at 12 of them, one, one each week, and talking about things like prayer and meditation and fasting, things like this. Now, you may hear this, and we said this last week, but you may hear that and think, that does not sound fun. That sounds like uh, this is going to be burdensome, this is going to be laborious, this is going to be rough. I'm not excited about this. And that's fair. I understand why you would say that. I also think that might expose a misunderstanding of what these even are. It's, um, it may be like uh, if you were drowning in the ocean, just out in the open ocean, your head bobbing, trying to keep above water, you're just treading water, and uh, a life not a lifeboat, a rescue boat comes by and throws a life jacket out at you, a life preserver down at you, and you call out and you say, oh my goodness, can't you see I'm drowning here? Why would you throw another burden right on top of me? And you, know, you think, okay, well, they're not throwing a suit of armor on you. They're, they're throwing a life preserver, a life jacket. In other words, that thing is not designed to burden you, to restrict you. It's designed to liberate you. That's how um, these Christian practices function. We've been saying that uh, Christian spiritual practices are God-given practices that lead us to more fully experience and express God's love. 
There's nothing burdensome about that. There's nothing restrictive about that. They're intended to lead us to more fully experience and express God's love. And the practice that we're going to look at today is the practice of worship. And you think, is worship a practice? Yeah, it's a practice. We're going to talk about it. And I want to begin this way by saying something that may be a little over the top, as preachers are known to do, say things that are a little over the top. But I would say this. <clears throat> it does not matter if you consider yourself a Christian or not, if you consider yourself religious or not, if you consider yourself spiritual or a believer or not, or whatever. It doesn't matter. All of us, the bulk of our problems boil down to being fundamentally worship dysfunctions. The vast majority of our problems, I would say, are ultimately worship problems. Uh, and I realize that's a big thing to say, and I want to try to explain what that means from this passage in uh, Ephesians 1, which is this uh, glorious, amazing passage. One of these days, I want to do a whole sermon series just on this particular passage. We spend 15 weeks on this. One of these days, we're going to do it because there's just so much amazing stuff crammed to the brim of this thing. So I feel a little frustrated this morning that we can really only do a, like a 30,000-foot fly over this thing. But we're going to do it, and I want you to see three principles emerge about worship, what this passage has to teach us about worship. Three things. This shows us the nature of Christian worship. It shows us the offer of Christian worship. And it shows us the practice of Christian worship. So the nature and the offer and the practice. So that's what we're going to talk about. Let's talk about the nature first, because that's the first one. So let's start with the first one. Uh, in other words, what is it? What is worship? What, what is at the heart of that word when you say worship? Uh, I'm partial to another pastor, uh, author, theologian, thinker, Tim Keller. And here's how he defined worship. He said, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes your whole being. Worship is an act of of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes your whole being. I like that because the actual word worship, uh, we get from the old British, the old English word worthship, an old-timey English word, worthship. So what you're doing when you're worshiping something is you're ascribing worth to that thing. You're saying this thing is the most ultimate, significant thing. And, it, and you're not just doing that with your words that's disconnected from the rest of your life. You're doing that in a way that, that your whole life is energized by. The book of Ephesians is not uh, actually a book. It's a letter that was written by Paul to a church in Ephesus. And he did not write this letter in English. He wrote this letter in Greek. We translate it into English. And so you miss some things sometimes when you're looking at the English translation. So when you look at this passage, uh, verses 3 through 14 here in Ephesians chapter 1, um, when Paul wrote that, this is all in Greek originally one sentence. We break it up to make it a little bit more readable. We, you know, we have paragraph breaks in there. But these, all of this was just one sentence. This is... This is 203 words that are just running on one after the other. In fact, when I was uh, studying for this, I thought this was really funny. 
you might not, but there's a commentator that was talking about this passage and, you know, in their very academic way wrote, this is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever met in the Greek language. I mean, you can go online and see people try to diagram this sentence. It's hilarious. It's like, it's insane. It's like, what in the, is Paul just a terrible writer? Does he not know how to rein it in with, you know, don't do run-on sentences? So every grammar teacher is, you know, freaking out when they read this. Uh, maybe, but I'm more inclined to think that he's more like, um, uh, if you've ever been around a young child telling you a story about something they're excited about, this happened to me this morning. In between the two services, I was hanging out with a kid back there. They were telling me about a birthday party they just went to at Chuck E. Cheese. And we had this, and then we went on this game, and then all the lights were on, and we pushed this button, and then we went over here to this game, and we did all, like, he just, all, there's no end in sight. And this is what Paul's doing. He's, he's, he starts with this thought, and it just spills out of him, and he can't control himself. He can't rein it in. He can't pull it together. It's just one thought after the other because he's so excited. What's the thought? Well, look at verse 3. Look at how it begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessing God. He's praising God from whom all blessings flow. And the more that he thinks about who God is and God's wonder and majesty and beauty and, and how God has related to him and how God has related to the church, it just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. Here's what I want you to see. This is very different from believing in God. This is delighting in God. This is adoring God. There's a British minister in the 18th century, a guy named Daniel Steele. We have a few of his letters, and he wrote a letter to a friend of his, and here's what he wrote in his letter about his own personal experience. He wrote this, almost every week and sometimes almost every day, I feel a pressure of his great love that comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make me groan under an almost unsupportable plethora of joy. At times, he has unlocked every apartment of my being and flooded them all with the light of his presence. The inner spot has been touched and its stoniness has been melted in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely. Now, we read that, and it's almost incomprehensible to us because it's so foreign from our experience. We're like, wow, I, that sounds like that would be nice. I don't ever have that. But here's what I want you to see. This experience of worship, at least what Daniel Steele's talking about, what Paul is talking about, is very different from just being religious very different from just going to church. This is a full-bodied, joyful overflow of the heart as you think about the worth, the significance, the beauty of who God is. Now, before we go on to talk about the offer, two quick applications of this. If that's the nature of worship, if that's what it is, what does that mean for those of us who would call ourselves Christians? I know not everybody in this room does, but for those of you that do, what does this mean for you? <clears throat> if you're someone that says, I sign off on Christian doctrine, I believe it, yes, I believe the Bible, I go to church, yes, I'm in, I'm, do, I'm into the whole thing. 
and yet your heart has never been gripped by the beauty of who God is, by the wonder of His grace for you, if it's never been touched, I don't know if what you're doing is called worship. You might be relating to God like one would relate to the Pythagorean theorem. You know, I would think all of us, for the most part, would say, I sign off on the Pythagorean theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Maybe some of you are like, that's not true anymore. Maybe there's conspiracy theories about the Pythagorean theorem. I don't know, but let's just assume it's true, and we all agree to it. I don't care at all about the Pythagorean theorem. It affects my life zero. I believe it's true. It has never once gripped my heart. And you might relate to God the same way. Sure, he's there. I believe him. I believe the Bible. I believe all this stuff. Sure, I'll go to church. And yet, it has never actually impacted my life. I don't know if what you're doing is called worship. What you're doing may be called Southern tradition. I go to church because that's what my subculture tells me to do. That's what my family does. That's just what we, this is what good people do, and I want to consider myself a good person. You may be doing that. I don't know if what you're doing is called worship, though. Second application, you may have had a very deep, intense spiritual experience in the past. Maybe you've had a really emotional moment when you were at a conference or a retreat or something, and you were really moved at one point, and yet your life really hasn't changed at all. You're still sleeping around, still just as petty or resentful as you've always been. And I don't know if what you're doing is called worship either. There's an author, a theologian named Richard Foster, and he said, I think he's right, he said, to worship is to change. You know, if you look at Paul, Paul's not just having an emotional freak out in this letter. Like, his life really changed. He was a religious terrorist, and he encountered Jesus and the grace of God, and his life, he became a, he became a church planner, became a missionary. So that's, that's the nature of worship. That's what worship is. It, is. it is to ascribe ultimate value, ultimate worth to something in such a way that energizes, transforms, changes your whole being. Now, that leads to the second question, why should you worship the God of the Bible? If that's what worship is, why would you worship, why worship the God of the Bible? What is the offer? Well, let's talk about it. Because here's the reality. Every single one of us is already doing this. We're already doing this worship thing. Every single one of us is ascribing ultimate value and significance to something already. It's just kind of already part of the deal. Uh, it's been said before that the world is not divided into the people who do worship and the people who don't worship. The world's divided into people who are worshiping something that's distorting their life, and they're worshiping the God of the Bible, which is renewing their life. Now, you may hear that and think, that is so ignorant of you to say that. That is so not true. I am not religious. I do not worship. How can you say that I worship? I want you to hear from uh, David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace is uh, he's not a Christian. He was a, um, a postmodern novelist. He wrote that massive book called Infinite Jest. I don't know if you've ever read that. I think some of you have. I tried to read it. It's got a bazillion footnotes in it. I was, it was over my head. It's too, too smart for me. Um, but he gave a 
several years ago now, he gave a speech, a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and it's become somewhat famous. You'll, you'll hear preachers refer to it. Maybe you've read it. People talk about it. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a really fascinating speech that he gave. But here's what he said. I'm going to read you just a little excerpt from it. Keep in mind, this is not a Christian. This is not a religious person. He says this, <clears throat> there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. In other words, what he's saying is every single one of us, it's unavoidable. We look at something and we say, that's the thing that gives me meaning and purpose and significance. I am driven by that thing. I'm driven to acquire it or I'm driven by a fear of losing it. Whatever it is, is the thing that's controlling my life. For some of you, it may be God. And yet, I think if we're honest, underneath that, you might think what you're doing is worshiping God, but underneath that, what you're really worshiping is being right or control or money or success, whatever. Whatever it is, every single one of us is looking at something and saying, that is what controls the entire orbit of my life. David Foster Wallace is saying, and the Bible is saying, well, that's just called worship. That's just what your heart's doing. It's worshiping. He goes on. Here's the rest of this little quote. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out and so on. So you see the point he's making. I think it's insightful. He's saying if you worship anything other than God, it will eat you alive. Let's tease this out with one more example. If the thing that you are living for is the joy and the significance and the, the meaning that you get from being in a romantic love relationship, that's what you are living for is that relationship. How does that eat you alive? Well, on the one hand, uh, it crushes the relationship. It smothers it because you're demanding that that other person be for you something they can't be for you. They're not equipped to fulfill you in all the ways that you are demanding that they fulfill you in. It means also that you'll probably stay in relationships that are unhealthy a lot longer than you should. You'll be in toxic relationships. You can't get out of them. You'll justify it. You'll make excuses. You'll stay in these terrible relationships because you're, you need that person. You need them. You can't, you can't see a way out. You've got to be with that person because they're feeding something inside of you. And if you ever do break up, it's not just sad. It's not just disappointing. It's like cutting your, your lifeline. 
They're the, they're, they're the source of your life, and you get rid of that, you have no more reason to live. It's eating you alive. You do that with your career. You say, what I am living for is making a name for myself. It's climbing up the ladder. It's being recognized. It's being discovered. What happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when you get passed over for the promotion or when you get let go or you never get recognized, you never get discovered? There's no point in getting out of bed, it feels like. It's your life. All these other things eat you alive. The offer of Christian worship is to say this, that the God of the Bible is the only object of worship that will not, not only eat you alive, but he will give you life. He doesn't just eat you alive, he gives you life. Did you know that Paul wrote this letter when he was in prison? Not in modern American prisons with air conditioning and, and access to you know, television. He's, he's writing this in a dirty, dark, terrible, horrible Roman prison where they could execute him at any moment. There's no, no guarantee he's getting out today or tomorrow or anytime. And did you notice, here he is overflowing with joy. He's not writing, please get me out of here. Do whatever you can. Get me out, get me out, get me out. He is praising God. Do you see it three times? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. In other words, Paul has found something that transcends his circumstances. I mean, look at his life. He has been stripped of comfort, of resources, of people. He has been stripped of everything. And he's joyful. He's stable. He's writing other people letters, which means he has capacity and resources to care about people outside of his little world. It's, it's amazing. That's the offer of Christian worship. You worship the God of the Bible. You have access to resources that transcend all of your circumstances, where you can lose literally everything and still be praising, still be worshiping, not, not feel like your lifeline is disconnected. That's the offer. Now, final question. How do you do that? Do you just look at your heart and say, worship God now? Just flip a switch. I wish it were that easy. Um, let's look at the practice of Christian worship, the practice. And again, with this series, we're trying to be really practical and give you a lot of specific things. Uh, there's like 20 things that I wanted to give here. I'm going to give three. You can thank me later that it's not 20. Here's the first the first of three, of what the practice of Christian worship looks like. The first is this, habitualize personal worship. Habitualize personal worship. In other words, make it part of your routine. Make it a ritual. Make it, um, make it a habit to, to personally adore God. If you're, if you're a, a praying kind of person, my guess is most people's prayer lives kind of function like this. God, thank you for today. God, thank you for all your many blessings. And now help me. And then we start listing out all the, you know, the things. We just roll out our honeydew list of here's all the stuff I want you to do for me, God, which is fine. That's great. It's, that, the Bible encourages that. Bring your needs and requests to God. And all I'm saying is spend time adoring him. I don't, I could be wrong, but I'm, my guess is that is not something most people do. 
I'm going to take time to worship you, to praise you, to delight in who you are and the, the wonder of how you've related to me. And I'll throw this in for free, free of charge. Um, this is going to sound weird, but maybe try incorporating your body. Here's what I mean by that. Um, you're not just a soul. The Bible says you're a soul and a body. That matters. You can, let, you can say, okay, I'm going to do what he said. T- tonight, I am going to spend some time just thinking about how wonderful God is. And you can do that lying down in bed with your head on a pillow. There's nothing wrong with that. That would be wonderful. You might find that you have a different experience if you did that on your knees. There's something about conforming your physical posture into what's going on in your soul that amplifies what's going on in your soul. Again, that's not the way to do it. It's not, thus saith the Lord, you must do it this way. There's no silver bullet. Just, just a suggestion. Try it and see what happens. Habitualize personal worship. Number two, prioritize corporate worship. Prioritize uh, corporate worship, public gathered collective worship, what we're doing right now. Did you notice that this, this ginormous sentence, it's all in the plural? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us even as he chose us in him that we should be holy, on and on and on. It's all, it's all plural. In other words, the assumption is, is that Christian worship assumes participation in a community. Yes, worship is personal. That's super important. And it's also corporate. It's collective. This is why um, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, book of the New Testament, verse 25 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let's not give up doing this, meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, there's an there's a assumption that Christian gathered worship is a priority for the life of people who follow Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Do you ever rearrange your travel plans or your hunting plans or your weekends at the lake in order to prioritize being here, Christian worship? Or is Christian gathered worship always automatically off the table if you've got other plans or if you have better plans? Now, I don't ask you that because I'm heaping on a guilt trip. Of course, there are times and situations where you can't make it back on a Sunday. That's just the way that, you know, that weekend works out. That's fine. We're not trying to be unreasonable. I'm just asking the question, if you ever rearrange, cut short other plans in order to prioritize this, or is this just expendable by default. It's just the default thing that gets, you know, thrown away. If you consider yourself a Christian and you would say, yeah, church is, it's expendable, that may be worth looking into. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 15, that refers to worship as a, quote, sacrifice of praise. And I love that language because I love how the Bible recognizes that sometimes praise feels like sacrifice. Sometimes you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're like, uh, not feeling it. 
been a long week. I feel this way, and I have to be here. So I'm sure you do, and you got the option to get out. Uh, I'm not feeling it. It's been a long I'm exhausted. And the Bible would say, I think, go anyway. Offer praise as if it's a sacrifice of praise. Prioritize Christian worship. Here's the third thing, briefly. Uh, personalize, uh, or what is it? Habitualize personal worship. Um, prioritize corporate worship. Last one, utilize the gospel in worship. If you notice the whole pattern of this sentence, God is the one who does the action. He's the one who does the acting. Verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, In love, He predestined us for adoption. Verse 6, He has blessed us in the beloved. On and on and on and on. And I love this language at the end of verse 7, bleeding over into verse 8. Look at this. He says, According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. I love that word lavished. You know what the word lavished means? It means to dump on excessively. It means to generously heap on top of you. I picture Paul underneath a waterfall that's just endlessly just dumping gallons and gallons of water on him. He's just sitting there, arms open, basking in this river, this waterfall of grace that he says is just, that God has lavished on top of him. That's the picture of Christian worship. It's somebody standing there with nothing in their hands, just basking in the wonder and the reality of it all. There's a religious impulse inside of us that wants to do it the other way around, though, where we want to come to God and say, God, look at how good I've been. Do you see all these hard decisions that I'm choosing to make for you? I'm trying to be good over here. Look, now answer my prayers. Fix this hard thing in my life. Take me to heaven. In other words, we're bribing God with our obedience. There's, a, there's, a, you know, there's another version of this that you know, modern hip, hipper churches can, be, can do where you can go into certain churches and the point is you got to get really emotionally stirred up and prove to God how passionate you are, how much you love Him. And it's a way of saying, God, look at how much I love you. Now answer my prayers, fix this hard thing in my life. Take me to heaven. We're just bribing God with our enthusiasm. You can bribe God with your obedience. You can bribe God with your enthusiasm. Both are manipulation. Religion says, God, look at what I have done for you. The gospel says, look at what God has done for you. This whole sentence, this whole, the whole, I mean, Christian faith boils down to this that God sent His Son, Jesus, for you, and He lived the life that you should have lived, and He died the death that you and I should have died, and He rose in our place, and He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and He accepted us, and He blessed us, and He forgave us, and He adopted us, and He loved us, and on and on and on and on and on. This is one of the reasons why we emphasize the word rest so much here at Redeemer because Christian worship begins and it ends with you resting in the love that God has for you, not showcasing for him how much love you have for him in the hopes that he's impressed enough that he might throw you a bone. 
It's collapsing into his grace, his love, his mercy. That's you utilizing the gospel in worship. That's you utilizing the gospel to fuel your worship as you think, okay, before I even got up this morning, before I made the decision to go to church, the Lord of the universe loved me. He didn't love me because I decided to get dressed up and go to church. He already did. He accepts me in Jesus even though I'm a dysfunctional train wreck. I don't have to jump through any hoops to get his attention. He just showers love and grace and mercy and welcome upon me. You take that deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart, you might find that you become more and more like Paul, where things get stripped from you, things get taken away from you, and you find yourself still worshiping, still joyful, still stable, still loving towards other people. That's what God's doing in us through this act of worship. That's the practice of it, and that is an invitation for you and for me. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would protect us from just going through the motions where we wouldn't just uh, go to church and sing some songs and pray some prayers, hear some words, take some communion, go home, and have it make zero impact in our lives. Protect us from being hard-hearted. Protect us from being blind to the wonder of your beauty. Would you stir in us what you can only stir in us, that we might see the goodness and the wonder of who you truly are. And I pray that just like Paul, the more that we lean into your love and drink up your love and feast of your love, that we might be the kind of people where it's just spilling out of us even when our lives are a mess, even when our lives are a wreck. Only you can do that inside of us, so would you please do that? We pray all of this in the name of our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus.